I'm going to start the, uh, the teaching time off with a video about uh, a baseball player, particularly Dallas, uh, I'm sorry, Bryce Harper. Uh, sorry, yeah. Um, like him or not, he has one of the better swings in baseball today. I mean, he's, he's, he's compared to Mickey Mantle, Babe Ruth, you know, people like that. So, um, but I have a purpose in showing you this video, and that is that, A, in baseball, swings matter. If you're not a good hitter, you're probably not going to make it very far at all. You know, as a, as a former baseball player who admittedly likes to relive my glory days, I got to thinking about baseball, got to thinking about all the practice, all the time, the energy, the effort that we put into being a good team. And if there's one thing I remember most of all, or best of all, is just how relentless our coach was in making sure we understood how important it was to have a good swing. It just, it mattered. If you can't hit the ball, you're not going to be valuable much to your team unless you're a really, unless you're a pitcher, right? So, so I got to think about all the practice that we would do, all the drills that we would go through, you know, hitting off of tees, hitting soft toss, hitting off, hitting off of live pitching in the cage, on the mound. Our coach just put a premium on taking cuts. The more you could get at a practice, the better. And that's the better you're going to be at the game of baseball. There were times that he would put us in front of a net and a tee, and he would have a four-by-four post on the ground, and you would have to balance yourself on the post, making full swings, hitting off of the tee without falling off the post, because balance is a part of a good swing. And so we would laugh at each other because you're swinging, you're falling off the thing. People are completely wiping out and spreading all over the place because it's hard to swing with all your might, put all your power into it, have a good turnaround, have good core energy going on while staying on this post. I know for you football players, baseball is much more involved and more complex and more brain power is involved. So just hang with me, okay? Hang with me. So there's a lot that goes into the mechanics of baseball, particularly being a good hitter. And our coach would get upset with us when he would hear that we were out playing a round of golf. Of course, I never did that because golf is dumb, but I would not do that, right? So I didn't go out playing golf, but I would play like church softball over the weekend whenever I had a free weekend. That was a lot of fun because you're a decent baseball player. You go out at softball. It's like, I have a chance to show people that I'm, that I'm good, right? So, because softball is easy. You know, that's why whenever people are giving interviews, you hear of softball questions because softball like this is easy. No offense to the girls that play fast pitch. That's a different ball game. Albert Pujols couldn't hit fast pitch, okay? And he's one of the best hitters in baseball. So, uh, so when our coach would get upset, why? Because he didn't want any other swing to influence a baseball swing. You know, you swing differently when you're hitting a softball that's coming from a high arch. You're hitting differently when you're swinging a golf club. And he didn't want any of that to have any kind of influence on his ball players. And he could see it, and he would let us have it too. Been playing softball, been playing, been playing, you know, golf. Save that stuff for later. You know, it's like, don't mess up your swing. He didn't want that outside influence to come in. He didn't want any other type of swing to influence the swing that he had worked so hard through our different drills to get us uh, to, to be able to have and so that we could be effective as hitters. And so I say all that by way of introduction to kind of let you know that influences matter a great deal. As a matter of fact, they matter so much that Paul here places a premium on the influences that are in your life. He says you, you have to have good influences in your life. You must get rid of bad influences that are in your life. The Bible is replete 
with, with mentions towards the company you keep. Proverbs, Solomon, the wisest man in the world next to Jesus said, you know, he who keeps his companions as wise will be wise and he whose companions are fools will suffer harm. You know, so there's a big deal when it comes to influence. And listen to the words of Paul starting right out of the gate, right out of the gate in verse, in verse, uh, in verse 17. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. He says, join in following my example. Let me be an influence to you so that you know the way to go. And this is not arrogant of Paul, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But this is how he begins. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So what's the point? He's saying, the point I have for you is listen to the concern from Paul and his protection for the Philippians not wanting any of them to be influenced negatively by any other appearance of Christianity. Just like our coach didn't want us to be influenced by any other type of swing because there's a certain mechanic. You hear of batters getting into a slump. Usually there's a, there's a problem in their mechanic. It might be so small and so fundamental, but until they can find what's wrong with their mechanics, the same with a golf swing. If you're swinging and you hook or slice it a lot, typically it's something that's just fundamentally wrong with your mechanics. And so he's saying, stay the course, stay focused, and follow our example, and see to it that no one else comes in and messes up the mechanics that you have going for yourself right now. And keep in mind that just previously, Paul is saying to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is in that same thread. The same thread woven through the fabric of Scripture is surfacing yet again as he's saying, live according to the gospel. Live a life that represents the gospel, that represents Christ in a way that is accurate, in a way that is well and good. And he says, and here's a way that you can do it. Follow my example. Watch what I do. So influences matter. Examples matter. And here's the reality. You are all influenced by someone or something, and you all are influencers of someone else. You are. Whether you like it or not, we are all influences by we are all influenced by something and we influence others. But the idea here is to stay focused on whatever or whomever will influence us or you towards Christ. Surround yourself with people that love Jesus. I'm not saying don't hang out with people that are lost. How else are we going to interact with them and how else are they going to hear the gospel? But there's a difference in finding a companion and finding family and finding community in those who are Christ-like and finding community with those who are not. There's a reason the Bible speaks of being unequally yoked because light has no business with darkness. Children of light have no business acting as though they're in the same family with children of darkness. It doesn't negate evangelism at all. I'm not saying that. But there is a difference in the church and those who are not. And he's saying, follow the right example. Have somebody in your life that will lead you towards Christ and avoid locking arms with people that will lead you away. And don't hear Paul saying this without any kind of emotion or without any kind of heart towards these people. Over and over again in the Bible, it shows his deep affections for these people that he has helped come to faith in Christ these churches that he has been instrumental in planting or just outright planting himself, he has deep affections for them, deep concerns for them. 
Go back and look at the book of First and Second Thessalonians sometime and listen to Paul's language. He has such compassion for these people. He says how he dealt with them so gently, so tenderly. As a father, he cared so much for them. He worried for them. He, he, he rallied behind them, wanting good things for them. But he talked about how he so cautiously dealt with them because of his deep and great compassion for them. And the same is true for the church here at Philippi. So he says, follow my example Everyone is influenced by someone or something, and everyone influences someone else. I don't know if your child has ever come home with a, maybe said something that is unapproved language in your house, and you think, where did he get that? Maybe, maybe, maybe he got it from TV. That influences folks, right? You say, you didn't hear it from me, so the wives are pointing to the husbands. Yeah, he probably heard it from you. you potty mouth sucker, you know? So, so not that that's okay, but, but there's, we, we hear things. My kids have come home from school and saying things. I'm like, where did you get that? Sarah, you know, what? you're rattling off at the mouth again. You're hanging out with that Grove woman. I see, I understand, right? <laughs> you were there. It had to happen. What you going to say? You're out there. I'm up here. You can't talk right now. It's okay. So you shouldn't. We're recording. Don't mess it up. Um, so my son came home when the whole bottle flipping craze was going on. If I could shoot the phenomenon, I would, because he comes home and he's flipping everything. It goes from bottles to cars to Playstations. It doesn't matter. He'll flip it, flip himself if he could. I mean, he's, it's this flipping craze, the Fortnite dancing craze. I'll watch him playing baseball and he's out in the, he's out in the field doing some kind of Fortnite dance. There's a bunch of dances, right, Avery? You started doing it right there. So um, he's influenced. He's influenced by the game. His, I see his buddies doing all that. You know, they're doing the floss. They're doing all kinds of stuff. I'm like, what is happening? I failed as a father. My son told an inappropriate joke, not knowing what the joke meant, but he heard it from a friend at school last year. He told an inappropriate joke to my boss's son. But the joke was at the expense of my boss's wife. Bad influence. <laughs> I'm like, who taught you that? And I'm going to punch him in the throat. Because my boss calls me, he goes, hey man, I'm not upset. Just wanted you to know, I know this isn't how you teach your kid, but he told my kid this and my kid said this to my wife. I was like, oh goodness gracious. Well, I'm not going to tell the joke. <laughs> So we had a conversation with Wesley, like, okay, watch out for those that influence you and surround yourself with people, son, that will influence you the right way. Stay away from our neighbors. And Paul says, follow my influence. And it's not being arrogant because if you just look back, you can see where he says, all these things that were gained to me, the things that would have made me arrogant, I count these things to be rubbish. I count these things to be lost. And then he goes on and he says in verse 12, I have not obtained these things yet. He said, I'm not perfected. I'm not, per I'm not perfect. I'm not perfected, but I press on to make it my own because Christ had made me his own. So what he's doing is he's saying, I'm, I'm on this mission that, that I didn't seek to be on in the first place. You know, I was, I was just fine as a persecutor of the church, and then the Lord interposed himself into my life. He inserted his agenda and got rid of my own, and it wasn't something I was looking for. 
But the Lord did that. And now he's saying, and it's his power that's carrying me every moment through here so that by his grace and by his strength, eventually I will arrive at this place of perfection. I will arise at the, arrive at, to this place of completion on that day, the day of Christ Jesus. Not in this life, but in the next. So he's not being arrogant when he says this. He's just saying, look, look, look at what God has been so good to do in my life. Look at what Jesus has been so good to do with me. And look how he's carrying me. That can be for you too. You press in and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Let him make your path straight like he's doing for me. He's doing this work. So he's giving credit to Christ. So he's not being arrogant. So it's not arrogant for you if you're walking in line and you say, by God's grace, I was able to do this. Just, just follow that. And I understand if you would be hesitant to say such a thing, I would be as well. And that's, that's fine. That's humility. But understand that Paul's saying these things in humility as well. When he says, follow my example, he's saying that Christians need the influence of others in their life. They're going to influence them rightly, but they also need to be rid of those who will influence them negatively. And this is so common as a theme in the Bible. Moses had his father Jethro. Joshua had Moses. Elijah mentored Elisha. So Elisha had Elijah in his life. Timothy had his mother and his grandmother. The disciples had Jesus. Paul had the disciples. And the list goes on and on. And so it stands to reason that you and I would need someone to be an influence over us or for us and us as well be an influence to someone else. Parenting is, is the natural context for that kind of influence. It's just the automatic and obvious context. Siblings. An older sibling can be a positive influence to a younger sibling. And by the way, a younger sibling can be a positive influence for their parents. I've heard stories of families that came to Christ starting with a young child, a young boy who came to faith in Christ, and he was just relentlessly pursuing the salvation of his parents by giving them the gospel. And the little bit he knew of the Bible saying, this is true, and this is what God is showing me. And without any reservation saying, trust in Christ. And the family is saved. So staying the course, maintaining focus becomes a much easier task with the right influences. And let me share with you some characteristics of good influences. Those that would be a good example or a good influence in your life. These are people that are less likely to follow trends, but more likely to set those trends. Not, not like bottle flipping trends or fidget spinner trends or Fortnite dancing trends or anything like that, but someone that says, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to follow this crowd, you know, where it's maybe not so popular to do this because it's the right thing, or maybe I'm considered a square or a loser. I'm going to do it because it's right. See at the poll, which is still a phenomenon, still happening, still going on after decades, somebody started that. Somebody said, you know what, it's going to sound weird to gather students from a public school around the flagpole to pray for our country, to pray for our schools. But someone did it. When I'm sure there were many saying, that's a dumb idea, you're just going to get yourself into trouble, you're going to kind of invite some pressure that you really don't want to have to deal with, but they did it anyway. So a good example is less likely to follow trends and more likely to set them. A good example is someone who is less likely to give you a pass and more likely to call you out also known as someone who has your best interests in mind. We all have friends, and we all have friends that 
maybe say things or do things that we're like, ah, I don't think that's good. Christian friends were like, ah, and it's hard. It's hard to call them out and say, hey, bro, or hey, or hey, sister, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. That doesn't honor Jesus. That's not characteristic of the identity you have in Christ. That's hard to do. It's really hard to do because we don't want to face the fallout of that. We don't, we don't dare want to risk a broken relationship, so we give them a pass. And I'm not saying you're not a good friend or you're never a good influence, but in that moment, that's not the influence that that person needs. And at that moment, it's not the influence that you need. You need someone that will say, hey, that's not the way to go. Follow this. This is the right way. So it's someone who is less likely to give you a pass and more likely to call you out. This is someone who cares less about what you want and more about what you need. And we've preached on that for a couple of weeks, so I won't go into that anymore, but looking out for the interest of others. This is also someone who cares about what's ultimately right and not what's right now. Someone who's looking out for what's the best interest for your future. Someone who's thinking ahead saying, you know what, this right now, you may think it's permissible, but it's gonna, it's gonna, the dividends are not gonna be what you want. You know, the fallout of that is not gonna be good. You're not gonna like that. And it's not gonna be helpful or healthy for you. These are good influences. What type of an influence was Paul? What do we see in the text? We see that his priorities were balanced. If you go back, he says, listen, and we can see over and over and over again the example of Paul's life as a great influence. But just in the immediate text, there's a balance of priorities because he says all these other things, which were not, all of them, not intrinsically wrong. And he's saying, but compared to Jesus, these things pale in comparison. In comparison. What's the word? Comparison. Wow. Wow. At least I got my wife on the brain. She's a Patterson. So there you go. So, so um, thinking of good influences, my wife, right? So, so here you have it, right? So there's Paul's example. He has, a, he has a, a right balance of these things, keeping things of first place where they belong and things that are secondary or further beyond or things that don't even need to be in his life. He's saying, those things are gone. You know, I don't look to what lies behind, but I look to what lies ahead. You know, I press forward for the prize, the upward call of Christ Jesus. So Paul's priorities were balanced. He acted as someone whose citizenship is actually in heaven. He acted as a sojourner. That's a good example for you. Someone that's thinking not just this day, but thinking that day. Someone that says, you know what? I've got, I've got eternity to think about. Someone that's not putting all their eggs in the earthly basket and saying, you know what? This is where all of it ends for me. Everything, all my hopes, my dreams, my vision, my future, it's all wrapped up on earth. But the person of good influence says, this is temporary. This is not your home. You're a sojourner. So you need to be thinking next level. You need to be thinking of what's next. The things you do today, if I can just steal a word from Gladiator, the things we do today will echo in eternity, right? The things we do today should have impact for the future. And that's a good type of influence. That's the people you want to surround yourself with. That's definitely the mode of operation that we saw in the Apostle Paul's life. So staying the course, maintaining focus, it becomes much easier, even though a daunting task, much easier with the right influences in your life. But contrary-wise, it becomes much more difficult with the wrong influences in your life. Again, Solomon wrote in Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, that word fool, I want to be careful with that because when the Bible uses the term fool, it's a very, it's 
very derogatory, it's very strong. You know, if I say something, hey, you're, you're just being foolish, or we use that word very flippantly, and we don't mean it when we say it all the time as it's meant in the scriptures. But someone who's truly a fool, when you read the Proverbs, you read about a lot of fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a, that's a bit different from someone like, oh, you're a fool. You know, I'm sure Joey's been called a fool a lot. So there's a big difference, right, in that. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that's, that's the type of, of, of person that has influence on you and will cause you to suffer harm. And by the way, anybody that's outside of Christ, you know, can fit that category. So here's some characteristics of bad influences. Their lives are fraught with inconsistencies and hypocrisy. The patterns of their lives promote darkness much more than they promote light. Notice I said the patterns. There is a difference in momentary lapses in my life where I'm not representing Jesus, where I'm supposed to be a light shining in the darkness. I don't always shine. There's a difference in that in someone whose life is patterned after or identified by or characterized by a constant, a pattern of darkness. That's a big difference. Bad influences are passive. They are agreeable to a fault. They always go with the crowd, even if it's bad, because they don't want to make waves. They don't want to stir the waters. They want to be confrontational. So a Christian can be a bad influence. If you are associated with a brother or sister in Christ, and that brother and sister in Christ always gets himself tangled up with folks that are making bad decisions, but they just can't bring themselves to challenge it or to break away, that person as a Christian could be a bad influence because they're agreeable and passive to a fault. Characteristics of bad influence are also people that depend on others or they, they depend on others to do the right thing so that they don't have to do it. They're always waiting for someone else to step up to the plate. Christian, you can't afford to be that kind of person. You can't afford to be the one that's, I'm just too non-confrontational, so I'm gonna let someone else handle that. That's, you don't have that freedom. You just don't have that freedom. It's not as though God's gonna magically say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you with a non-confrontational, you know, gumption. God can do that, but he's made you how you are, so you might be a timid and a shy person. But let me just say this, and I know there's timid and shy people everywhere. It's hard for me sometimes to engage in confrontational conversations that are necessary. But one day I will stand before God and you will stand before God and we will give an account of everything and every opportunity we had in this life. And those things are gonna be on the list these type of people ultimately encourage or influence you towards looking less like Jesus instead of more like him. So watch out for these type of influences. And Paul kind of goes further into it. He starts to kind of give you some descriptions of the people that he's talking about here specifically. After he says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us, those who are good influences. He says, for many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears. They walk as enemies of the cross. Enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he gives us this bullet-pointed list. He lets us kind of see very briefly 
what kind of people he's talking about. They're in this destruction. The wages of sin is death. He's saying these people are outside of Christ. What he's not saying, he's not referencing a church that is filled with inconsistent and hypocritical Christians. He's not saying that. He's not saying, hey, beware of the people in your midst. There's plenty of times where there's warnings against that, but that's not what he's addressing right now. He's addressing those that are out on the fringes, those that might be looking to creep in and infiltrate the church and to cause the, 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 the rampant spread of cancer, spiritually speaking, that would just leave destruction in its wake. He says, these type of people, the wages of sin, what they've earned is death. This is the outcome for those people. He says, their God is their belly. Uh, not only were they gluttons, but they also had an appetite for licentiousness. They had an appetite for lawlessness. They had an appetite for sin. And it was evident in their lifestyle. He's saying, I've, I've watched, I've seen, I've observed, I have observed this, their lives, and their God is their belly. So he's speaking of their appetite more than just what they physically eat, but what their appetite is for as far as the things of this world. They don't have interest in the things of God, but their interest is in the things of the world and finding satisfaction in the things of the world. Their background was rooted in immorality, this is what Hendricks and William Hendrickson said. Their background was rooted in immorality and they perverted the doctrines of grace. Their appetite was for food and for the world. They glory in their shame. This is the type of person that he's saying is a bad influence for you. They took pride in the things that should bring them shame over their life. They gloried in, they relished, they boasted in the things that should bring them great shame. So if among your companion of friends, you have someone that says, hey, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Christ, and they have a pattern of glorying in their shame, then you must ask the hard question, is this person someone who is a companion that will cause me harm because they might not be in Christ? So you have to ask these questions. Paul's giving us the warning, and he's doing it so, with such great compassion and love. He's saying, stay away from these things. Stay away from these things. Their mind is set on earthly things. Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind is set on flesh and the mind set on flesh is hostile towards God. It says there's enmity between God and the mind that is set on flesh. These people who are set on worldly, earthly things are the people that their minds are set on flesh. And that's our natural disposition. That is our default mode from birth until we're awakened, until faith is is given as that gift by grace, until we are awakened to see Jesus, we are those people that our minds are set on the flesh. Nicodemus asks Christ in John 3, he says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? And Jesus says, you missed it. A natural mind is set on natural things. You have to think beyond that. You need divine, you need the supernatural, but he couldn't get past it. Why? Because he couldn't. He couldn't. The mind is set on the flesh. It's hostile towards God. He was in hostility with God. And Paul calls these people enemies of the cross. I don't know that there is a more damnable title in the Bible other than calling someone Satan, like he called Peter, by the way. And he called Judas a masso perdidio. He called him a son of damnation. This ranks up there with the worst of the worst. He says, these people are enemies of the cross. 
Just let that settle for just a moment. When you associate yourself with those who negatively influence you or influence you away from godliness and away from Christ's likeness, you are associating yourself, you are companioning yourself with someone who is an enemy of the cross. And there is a difference in that and associating yourself with them for the purpose of bringing them the gospel, bringing them hope and truth and life. So who do you call your companions? Who do you call your influences? And what do your influence, your influencees call you? So how does someone fall into the category of enemy of the cross when they don't hate Jesus or they don't hate the cross? Well, let me help you understand that those whose lostness naturally those, those who are lost, their natural position, they naturally position themselves at odds with Christ. So this is an issue of being, not doing. And I'll explain this through a couple of scriptures. Again, Romans 8, 7. Listen to this. I'll read the rest of this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It cannot. It is an impossibility in your lostness to submit to God's law. It's a position of hostility that the hostile person relishes in. And unless, like Paul, God intervenes and interposes or interjects himself, nothing changes. Colossians 1.21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Speaking of those at Colossae in their former time before being a Christian. You were hostile. The same, you were, you're the same person that he's talking to the Romans about. Romans 5.10, if while we were enemies, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So three verses, three texts, and a, and a list of many that make it pretty stinking clear that your natural disposition, your default mode is at odds with God. Thank you, Adam. That's what has been earned for everyone. And that's what everyone has inherited. And I say that knowing that if I were in Adam's spot, I would have probably done the same stinking thing. So this is an issue of being versus doing. It's not what you do that places you at enmity with Christ, but who you are. Just because a non-believer has never, has never uh, intentionally set himself against God, it doesn't mean that he's not hostile towards him. Because it's being, it's not doing. It's who you are a guilty sinner. Your nature is broken because you have inherited Adam's guilt. The influences we have and the influences we are, we are play a central role, central role in staying the course for living in a manner worthy of the gospel, but also our future hope, a future hope because of the promise to ultimately and finally be conformed to the image of Jesus. So, I didn't say it before, but my primary thesis is basically this. Walking in a manner worthy of the gospel is made possible by present influences, by future hope, and by divine power, because that's what I see there in the text. So I'm gonna move quickly to finish this up by 11.30. So our future hope, our future hope is here. It's in conformity, the promise to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And keeping in mind, believers are the only ones conformed to the image of Jesus. Those who are, those, every man is, is made in the image of God, but only believers are being conformed to the image of Christ. 
The next verse says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to this. Paul essentially says, hey, don't chase after the world and its treasures, but wait, wait for the better things to come. Don't chase after those things. Don't become an enemy of the cross. He says, don't chase after those, but wait, wait for the better things to come. We are settlers for lesser things by nature. We do this. We settle for lesser things. I would like to have a new vehicle. And if it was up to me, I would not wait at all, but I'm kind of forced because of a little bit of a financial situation, okay? So my gratification is delayed by force. But if anyone knows me well, you know that I am not a big guy for delayed gratification. I want it now. This idea of waiting here is not passive waiting. When he says we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the type of waiting that John talks about in 1 John 3, 3. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So regardless of how the end comes around, those who are in Christ will be fully conformed to his image. Living a manner worthy of the gospel means having more to show for our lives that are given for Christ. And it means being a better reflection of him through our lives. These are things we're working towards on this day in preparation for that day, the day that we're finally conformed to the image of Jesus. And it's a, it's, it's a work that's started at salvation. It's happening now. Sanctification, it's happening right now. So this waiting is the epitome of delayed gratification. It is the epitome of better things that are yet to come. The Bible says in Romans 8, 29, that we shall be conformed to the image of the Son. We shall be. We are being conformed and will ultimately be conformed. 1 Corinthians says that we will bear the image of heaven. We will bear the image of heaven. 1 John 3 says we will be, when he will be manifested, we will be like him for we shall see him even as he is. This means that the martyrs who were torn apart by lions, one day the Lord will reconfigure the body. This is what it says. Listen to the text as I read through. It says, we await a Savior, Lord and Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So something crazy is going to happen. Whether you've been cremated, whether you've been torn apart, whether you're just split in half, whether you're whole, either way, God somehow, and this all has to do with some weird eschatology stuff that I don't really understand or don't have a definitive side just yet, but I know that the promises are one day we're made complete, and it's a very physical completion. And this is the promise that we have. The text says we will be given a glorious body to replace our lowly body, a body that cannot be overrun by sickness and disease, a mind that cannot be consumed by Alzheimer's and things of that nature, eyes that will never go blind, and those things are great, but this is important. A body that will never fail us is appealing, but that shouldn't be the selling point. And this is what should. Not just the body that is put together so that our heart and flesh will no longer fail us. But a body of spirit and mind and thought that is also made complete as well. Think of a body and a mind that can rightly experience and encounter the glory of Jesus. Stay with me, we're finishing. Think of that. Think of a body and a mind that can rightly experience and encounter the glory of Jesus. You can't fathom that. I can't fathom that, but that's what's to come. 
And you might sit there and say, well, well, the Lord has given me small glimpse and it has been so overwhelming and so wonderful. The Lord can only give you small glimpse because it would destroy you. God asked Moses, what is it that you want for me? Wouldn't you like to have that? Not that God is a, a genie, but he says, Moses, what do you want? And Moses says, I just want to see your glory. And God says, okay, but you got to hide behind this rock and I'm going to pass through. Why did he make Moses hide? Because his glory was so much that it would destroy Moses. So think of having a mind that will finally begin to rightly process the concept of grace, that we might finally be able to sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and get it fully. Think of having the capacity to appreciate God's majesty and the majesty of his creation. We see mountains. You go to the Grand Canyon, and it overwhelms you, but you are seeing it through a dirty filter. You're seeing it through a tainted lens, but one day, no more. And the reason you will be given a pure filter is so that you can enjoy God most. That's it. It's not so you can say, oh, look at the Grand Canyon. It is really cool. It's to say, you did that? That is a testimony of your majesty. That is what that's there for. That is something you've allowed me to see and to glorify you as a result of. That's what we look forward to. Thinking, think of being able to finally understand what it is for there to be no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We say, oh, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And for those that the Son has set free, we are free indeed. We say that. We quote those scriptures and we say, I'm free in Christ. This is great. I'm free. But we don't get it. We can't fully get it. But one day we will. We will stand there and realize what freedom actually is and what Jesus actually did with his atonement. And so we wait. We wait for the coming of Christ. But not with idle hands or idle minds. We wait as we labor for purity, such as it says in 1 John 3, 3. We show our confidence in Christ as we deny ourselves daily. We wait for a greater hope so many others, like so many others before him who did not leave disappointed. We wait with the hope made possible through his divine power. And I'm closing with this because it says in the last portion of this text, it says he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You wanna know what the ultimate sign of power is? A power that you don't have and I don't have? It's represented in the fact that all things are in subjection under Christ's feet. That's power. Everything is in subjection under his feet. He commands it all. That's power. And that's the power that Christ has. And that is the power that works to drive us towards completion. That's what he's saying. A power that enables him even to subject all things under his feet. That's the sign of true power. He's the head of all rule and authority, the Bible says. For God has put all things into subjection under his feet, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Putting everything in subjection under his feet, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control, the author of Hebrews. Ephesians 1, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Is there any question? whether or not Jesus has the power to bring us to completion. Is there any power that Jesus has the ability with the right influences in our life and him using those to keep us on the course, to keep us focused? No, there's no question. 
There's power in his word. He made all things by his word. He made these oceans. You want a fun fact? The Atlantic Ocean contains 310,410,900 cubic kilometers of water. This is a hard number to understand. I get that. Lake Tahoe contains 150 cubic kilometers of water. So just a few less cubic feet or, or a few less kilometers, cubic kilometers of water than the Atlantic Ocean. Another way of looking at that is to understand that one cubic kilometer equals 264.17 billion gallons. Now, my math stops there. But you can imagine the volumes of water in an ocean. And God just says, let it be. Well, Jesus, God the Son, says let it be because Scripture says Jesus created these things. Waves rise up, and he says to them, hey, be still. Who does that? Lame or lying there, and he says, get up and walk. And they do it. And he's not saying, hey, let me just, let me just give you the right frame of mind. Let me just help you to be able to name it and then claim it. No, Jesus is commanding every cell. He's commanding everything that's happening and what needs to take place in that body to reconstruct, to, to resurface, to whatever needs to happen, to realign, so that this person can have life, whether it's raising someone from the dead, whether it's letting the blind see, or whether it's causing the lame to walk. That's power. There's power in his word. There's power in his being. In Mark chapter 5, which is my favorite place to read about this in the Gospels, this woman who had a hemorrhage for 14 years, 14 years she bleeds. 14 years she experiences a menstrual cycle. Can you women imagine such a thing? And not just that, after 14 years, that's 14 years that she's cast out of the camp. Like, she can't be in there because of the law. 14 years she's not allowed to be in there. And she hears that Jesus is passing through town. She doesn't get a chance to have a conversation with Christ, but she has so much faith that she moves her way through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. And then the scripture says this, and it's kind of funny. Jesus observed that power had left him. There's power in his stinking garments. There's power in his clothes because of his great and mighty power. And he has power to forgive sins. My goodness. Do you know how awful you are? <laughs> you know how awful we are? And he has the power to forgive those. We, we're hostile towards God. We position ourselves as enemies of the cross from the get-go. He has the power to forgive that. This is the power that moves us towards our completion in Christ. So a few questions for you. Do you find yourself relying more on your strength or on his? Do you put more stock in your power or whatever you're able to manufacture for godly living and holiness? Or do you rely on his strength? It's there. It's there. He says, I will empower you. A tightrope walker or a trapeze artist doesn't know the net will catch them until they test it for themselves. They know it's there, but they don't know it's going to hold unless they fall and put it to the test. You will not know if God will carry you if you continue to try to carry yourself. Some of us just need to let go. Let go and trust the application of God application of Christ's power to propel us towards a life lived in a manner worthy of the gospel. Parents, what kind of influence are you for your kids? 
What kind of influence will you be for your coworkers tomorrow? What kind of influence do you have surrounding you? Students, what kind of influence are you to your classmates, to your peers? To Zaxby's. What kind of influence are you? What kind of influence are others? Are, are, to you, are you to others or are others to you? Surround yourself with others who will influence you towards the things that matter. Spend your days actively waiting for something better, namely Jesus and his promise of final completion conformity. And trust the power of God to see you through to the very end. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do just that for us today. You would give us the power to see this thing through. Lord, that we would seek out those who would be good influences to us and we would follow their example because we rest on the shoulders of so many, most importantly, Jesus. Lord, send people our way that can influence us, that can disciple us, mentor us, teach us, help us, call us out. To not be non-confrontational when, when the context demands confrontation. Father, help us to care enough for our brothers and sisters to not be passive, but to be active and to look out for each other's interests. Father, help us to love you in the way that you deserve to be loved. Lord, help us to savor you more and to desire you more. Give us eyes to see you in a way that we can't currently see you Turn our heads, stir our affections, Lord. Give us an insatiable attraction to you and to your word. Restore to us joy for those that are struggling. For those that are experiencing joy right now, Lord, let us rightly identify your grace as the cause for that. Father, I want to ask you to bless our meal as we close now and go to fellowship together through breaking bread, we thank you for it. We ask that you grant us great fellowship together. In Jesus' name, amen.